bro. How you doing? Blessed, bro. I can't complain. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. We're currently set up on a Zoom call, so I can see that you're in a different location today. Where are you? Yes. So, um, like many people, I am breaking lockdown rules. Actually, I'm not. So we, we're actually allowed to meet up with a different household. I'm at my uh, mother-in-law's. So it's my niece's third birthday and she's loving it. Amazing. Let's get down to the real brass taxi. What the, the most important question. What did you eat? So, uh, two or three servings of jollof rice. Amen. My chicken. Praise God. My chicken is, is very, very special. Um, people had to be reminded about my chicken. Um, and a bit, a bit of salad, you know. Health is wealth. <laughs> I'm not mad at that. No plantain, no? How could I forget? Um, and it was a soft one. It's a soft one. There's a, there's a picture I've been sending out to like a, a youth group I work with, um, yeah. which has different gradients of plantain. And it asks them, <laughs> which one is right? Um, because there are many wrong answers. Um, I might send that to you at some point. For me, I like mine to be on its way to browning. I like mine dark, like almost nearly to the point where you wouldn't pick it up if you saw it on the street. <laughs> you think this is a bit too far. No, that's, that's for me. The ones that are sweet. Good time. Good it, sounds time. Like you, it sounds like you've had a good day. Me, um, it's been good. I have really just been knocking a whole lot of things off my to-do list. It's uh, been a busy week. This year is seeing me move house and potentially get married. And because of that, there isn't any such thing as a quiet weekend. There's always something to do. And yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm valuing any free time I get at the moment. I managed to get an hour nap earlier, which was fantastic. And yeah, I'm just trying to mentally prepare myself for the week ahead. I don't miss those days. I genuinely don't. I think preparing for a wedding is torrid. It's actually a horrid experience. Um, truly horrible. It's amazing if you're a woman. Um, my wife loved it. I just looked at her face when she got calls from the wedding planner um, suggesting new things that we should somehow get. And it was just an exhilarating experience for her and one which just made me very tired and broke. <laughs> well this is it so i will be having conversations with my partner every once in a while and then something will come up she'll mention oh wouldn't it be nice for us to have that and then uh, my, my whole body gets warm a single bead of sweat will start coming down my brow and my voice will start to quiver and, and i'm and it's interesting because it's like you're at a western standoff you know, in the Westerns where they used to pull the, the fastest gun in the West, yep. both people are, are, their hands are shaking about to pull the trigger For and sure. it's who will go first because nobody wants to flinch. So we, we're just trying to, we're, we're trying to size each other out. Yes, dear, it would be good to get this, wouldn't it? Uh, well, it depends. On, and that's the type of conversation we're having. And then we'll see you get shut down first. Um, lately, I, I think I've been losing, but I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting my nerve back. I'm broken. We've all lost. But we're, we're happy. Lost. Lost in love. Well, the key to good negotiation is to find a win-win. What I'm saying to my partner at the moment is if I win, you win. 
and if you and you and no and if, <laughs> and and if you and I win we're trying to get to that position and to be honest that's not just something that is relevant to relationships it's something re- relevant to businesses as well it's so important when working with other companies and also working uh, with with your customers to try and get to that win-win solution where nobody feels like they're hard done by, nobody feels like they've had to make a significant sacrifice. And when you get there, then people are more likely to want to add value, support you in the future. So that's the challenge and that's what we're trying to make happen. An expensive lesson. Speaking of which, welcome to Expensive Lessons, a podcast where company directors share with you the fruits of their labor. And today we've got a good one. I'm excited. We have a very special guest, uh, an individual who we met almost a year ago now. Well, about about eight months ago now. And somebody who immediately struck me as somebody that I could gain understanding from, learning from. A very well put together individual, very sharply dressed always. That's one thing that I always notice. Always. Always. But also had some some just gems, gems of information that I thought I could benefit from. And I, I think that the listeners today are going to benefit from. So we have with us the co-founder and managing director of Eloise Beauty. This is a business that operates internationally and has a large presence on social media. Um, Tunde, our, our guest today, does this in his spare time. For a living, his day job is a stock exchange technologist, which I have no idea what that means. And we're going to delve into that in more detail. But in general, he's a, a very insightful, intelligent person who I think we're all going to get some very good insight from today. So welcome, Tunde. Good evening, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you. I couldn't help overhearing your conversation about wedding planning. It, you know, it brought back memories. Help me. <laughs> I'm sorry, mate, but that's how it goes, you know. Um, yeah, I, I got divorced last year, but I, I got married in 2005, went through the same thing. I, I think at the point where my partner said, can we have a horse and carriage? Bearing in mind, <laughs> we, we, our, our, church, our church was in Halsen, northwest London. So of all the places to be going through with a horse and carriage, definitely not, you know, Halsen where I'm going to have like guys in their open top cars cussing me as they're stuck in traffic, you know, with me on a horse and carriage. I said, no, you, we're drawing the line. Sorry. No. <laughs> no. So I like what you said about the uh, standoff, you know, the sort of like Western spaghetti movie standoff, you know. You know what? Every time I have a conversation with a man about his wedding, I start to appreciate my fiance a lot more. Uh, I'll put it that way because she's got demands, but then they're not horse and carriage level demands. Yeah, at least not in Northwest London. At least. (laughs) But welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks. Really appreciate you taking the time out to do this. Um, you're, You're somebody who has your finger in multiple pies and somebody who I think from a business perspective has already shared with us some really valuable insight. So I just want to start off really with finding out or sharing a little bit more information about you. So as I said, your, your day job is as a stock exchange technologist, which Correct. is for me, it's just words. 
<laughs> they're, they're separate words. I know what they all mean individually, but when yeah. you put them together, that's kind of when, when I, I get confused. So could you tell us a bit about that? What, what, what does that role entail? Sure. So I work within the financial services and um, I work with the technology that stock exchanges, um, the back end of the technology that they use. So for equities where you have, which say the long, take the London Stock Exchange or your NASDAQ or your NICES um, or UREX, when all the financial houses do their transactions on a stock exchange, a stock exchange would be more for equities than you have FX and commodities. All these transactions are done on particular platforms. So the technology that goes into creating them and maintaining them as the million dollar pounds or euro transactions are going back and forth every day, I work on the back end of it, basically. Understood. And from what I know about that environment, they have to be incredibly precise and incredibly quick. Those transactions have to occur in milliseconds. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, there's something called latency. So latency is about how fast a transaction can go from, say, New York to London. And we're talking about millions and millions of microseconds. So the more you can get those microseconds down, you're getting better latency. So even before you've clicked on your mouse to click on the transaction, somebody's got there before you. And of course, you have computers doing these things as well. So you have things called high-frequency trading where computers are talking to computers and the transactions are going so quick. I'm not going to bore you with that stuff. Um, but yeah, that's my... That's my uh, eight to six, as I call it, not my nine to five. That's all I do. Well, honestly, this isn't boring me at all. My background is in engineering, so I could, okay. uh, we, we, we could bore everybody listening to this <laughs> by going back and forth on, on that together. Right. Um, but as you said, your eight to six is you working with some of the most um, high demand technology on the planet. It has to be incredibly precise for, for right. obvious reasons. And you're gonna be um, managing the transaction of in a day, millions, if not billions of pounds. And then you get home or you get to your second office, wherever that may be. And then yeah. you work in the beauty industry. That's correct. So as you mentioned correctly, I'm the co-founder, managing director, COO. I don't use my CEO moniker that much, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm co-founder of Eloise Beauty. Ironically, Eloise Beauty is a 24-7 job. So even while I'm at work, and don't tell my boss or bosses about this, my partner is constantly texting me and WhatsApping me and calling me. So um, it can be challenging. You know, there was, I won't name the company. I was working for an investment bank last year where based on some things that happened in the past where they had a rogue trader, I've probably given it away now, um, we weren't allowed to use phones. I was working on the trading floor, so we're not allowed to use phones. So my, my business partner hates my job. She hates it. She tells me to my face, I hate your job because you never pick up the phone when you're at work. Or most of the time you can't pick up your phone. So I don't like your job. I was like, that's quite nice to have your support all the time, you know. Um, but yeah, that's the nature. But yeah, uh, the way, you know, we're an online brand, you know, we, we, we sell all around the world. And, at, you, and you guys know when you're a business owner, you don't really have a set time that you're working. It's a constant push all the time so i get home i have stuff to do there are times where i have to wake up overnight to do work 
Um, today's where I sleep four hours and then I'm back to work in the morning. Sometimes I'll sleep three hours. There have been occasions where I didn't sleep at all, just doing the work overnight. You know, we're a small, very small, tight-knit team, you know. So, of course, we have other stakeholders that we kind of farm out to third parties, but the core of Eloise is a very small unit. Well, some of the comments you made really do remind me of the experience that I currently go through. And Aflabi will tell you that there was a period where we had our team meetings uh, as partners at 3 a.m., we, we would have our team meetings at three o'clock in the morning just wow. because that was the only time we could we could um carve out um but but um yeah it's it, it's interesting to, to hear some of the challenges that you go through from from a partnership perspective and yeah. i'd be yeah I'd be keen to hear your view afalabi in terms of what you've heard and uh if, if you have any points you'd like to add it's refreshing but also painful to hear other people go through this. Um, painful because we can empathize, we've been through it ourselves, but refreshing because we need more people to hear this. Because often the, the startup journey, the journey of an entrepreneur is romanticized. Yeah. And the hard slog, which is in its infancy and its early years, um, is completely ignored. The process is ignored. So people hearing this who are thinking, actually, I want to do something. I want to do it now. I've listened to do it now. I believe in it. Listen to what Tunde is saying, because that has to be part of your everyday um, equation of how your life might be for a period of time um, for it to become a reality. That's very true. Sorry. Agreed. But, you know, this is why a lot of businesses fail, unfortunately, because people go into it with a romantic idea and then they actually get hit with the truth. But we have a business which is very successful. Eloise Beauty, if you go online and look at Eloise Beauty, you see it's got a huge online presence, really beautiful Instagram page. That's one thing that stands out to me when you see something which is like cultivated. It's not by accident the way that some of the images come together, which, which shows that there's a level of attention to detail in what's going on, going on there. But with that, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Eloise Beauty. So could you tell us how the company started, um, how it's grown and where you are, where you are right now? Sure. Um, so Eloise Beauty was an idea way back from 2016. Um, so myself and my business partner, Rissy, you know, we had a look into the beauty industry, um, just studying what was out there. Um, so we noticed that when it comes to, when it came to beauty brushes, there wasn't a lot of fantastic brushes out there. You had maybe the top brand, which is Artiste, but there, was, there wasn't much out there in terms of innovation and deliver, delivery of results. So we decided that we wanted to come up with a particular product that delivered everything that a beauty investor, um, you know, a brush that delivers impeccable results. Um, in terms of its look, it looks quite um, beautiful when placed on your dressing table. And um, just something that in terms of when you compare it to what you have in your collection, you know that this brush is an all-rounder. So we came up with a brush called a teardrop brush, which was a first for the industry at the time that was released into the beginning of 2017 is when we say we can we really launched um eloise beauty now um we came up with the brush called the teardrop it's called a teardrop brush 
the teardrop brush is actually a teardrop shaped brush. And that was our first, that was our first and only product at the time. I remember our first website, you know, um, when I remember we've, we've been for a few, um, updates of our website. There was, we had this video that reminded me of an eighties, um, B movie just with the, with the animation that came together. But that was our website at the time. You know, we launched our brush on the website on the website. Um, and within our first month, so I remember the first day we had our first sale, it was Boxing Day of 2016. So, uh, you know, our, our platform is a Shopify platform. And if you guys know Shopify very well, when you get a sale, it will notify you with a cha-ching. Very yeah. nice. Very nice. <laughs> so, you know, 24 hours, you know, we'd launched it. I will, probably will go into more discussion about how we actually launched the product, the, the product, you know, to the public. So we were just sitting there, I'm at home, my business partner's at home, we're waiting. And then we hear our first cha-ching. And then um, it's like, wow, that was Boxing Day, you know, 2016. So obviously, you know, five days in 2017, I'd say it was really 2017 that the sales come in, uh, came in. So in our first month, I think we did about 30K in sales um, in our first month. And that was really the inception of um, Eloise Beauty. You know, we're really more known for our brushes the whole idea behind our ethos is to make brushes that are aesthetically pleasing, deliver impeccable, impeccable results as well. And with a lot of our products, you see that there's a lot of innovation thought that goes into it. We have now, you know, three years later, we have a very wide range of brushes and we do color as well. We've gone into color cosmetics as well. Yeah. Understood. We are going to definitely delve into quite a bit of that. Um, we started out on a Wix website. So we didn't get to, um, to, to, to hear that cha-ching from, from the first sale. But then we did move over. As you say, websites take on different iterations. And um, yeah, it, it, over time, you get to develop. We did eventually move over to Shopify. Afalabi, do you remember when, where you were when you heard your first cha-ching? I don't. But I do remember thinking, I like that. <laughs> I, I really like that. Um, <laughs> That Shopify are exceptional. Um, when I speak about Shopify, people think I'm on the payroll because <laughs> they are just better. Mm. Better than WooCommerce, better than Wix, better than WordPress. Um, GoDaddy are trying to enter in the arena. Great branding. They're still better than them. Um, but one thing which really helped me gain an affinity with them was that they understood the feeling that entrepreneurs wanted to feel. Now, yeah. in modern day society, many entrepreneurs are no longer on the high street, they're online. And what the high street retailer was able to feel was the opening and closing of the cashier. That's a great feeling. You've made a sale, you've closed the deal. We don't get that when you're online. We just get an email. It's not the same feeling. But for them to um, institute that cha-ching notification it really set them apart. And, and Tunde, you might remember there was a period where it stopped working. Um, and I, I felt a part of me missing. And they actually had to email everyone saying, okay, there's been a glitch. It's not working, but we're going to bring it back. That's how yeah. much people appreciate it. Yeah. My business partner, Rissy, um, up until today, she still has it on her phone. Um, I had to turn it off at one point, you know. Um, but I think at one point, you know, that cha-ching sound, it's the sound of success, you know, um, the sound of your business thriving. So when you start having intervals with that ching-ching, you know, you start to worry a bit. 
but if it's just constant chichings, you know, um, that's always a good feeling. It's a, it's a good feeling. And I think the encouragement I'll draw from for, for anybody is if you do have a Shopify website, if you can get, a, if you can get one chiching, that means you can get 10. Definitely. And if you can get 10, you can get a hundred. If you can get a hundred, you can get a thousand. It means that you might need to adapt or adjust your business model, but some stranger, maybe on the other side of the world has just told you that I like your value proposition but I don't even know who you are. And that is a very encouraging feeling because I'm not doing this. I'm not paying, giving you money because I like you. I don't even know what you look like, but you've done something. You've marketed yourself in a way that means I'm willing to part with my money. So if you can do that once, I believe you can do it a thousand times. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the uh, inception of the product. So you yeah. mentioned you've actually developed your own teardrop brush and sure. there are a lot of people probably listening to this who've got their, the idea of a product in yeah. mind, something which is different from anything that they can get on the high street. Could you talk to us a little bit about the process for actually building something which initially started out as maybe a drawing on the back of a piece of paper to something that you could actually physically hold in your hand? Correct. So in fact, your last sentence about an idea on a paper is completely correct. So uh, my business partner, Rissi, she's worked in the beauty industry for over a decade. So um, at that particular time when we were consuming Eloise, she was working at um, Selfridges. Um, sorry, Harrods. I always get mixed up. I think she's working for it. So she was working at Harrods. And what it was, um, she was working with a particular kind of clientele. We all know what Harrods is like. And um, a lot of customers from the Middle East and obviously you have people from all around. But what it was, you know, so she was kind of in the middle of just seeing what certain people were kind of um, attracted to in terms of products. So we would discuss this and we would then, we did, we did our research, we looked at beauty brushes. Now, Ikea plays a big part in the inception of our business because there was no business. We were just myself and my business partner, Rissy, would go to Ikea um, and we would start to, I, you know, I would draw, she'd, she would, we would start to play with ideas. I would do the drawings. I'm not exactly the best, you know, artist in the world, but, you know, I'd come up with what looked like toothbrushes at the time. But, you know, um, we would play around with design. So everything was just us sitting down in Ikea over bangers and mesh and actually just coming up with drawings of ideas. Now, once the design started to take shape, like, okay. Um, the next thing was that we would go, so this is the early days now, there's no business. So we, could, we went onto Fiverr, um, then we found like um, artists who could actually do um, designs drawn to specification with a lot more clearer um, presentation with measurements, you know, to size as well. So we came up with online sketch and went onto Fiverr, found a couple of people to do sketches for us. Um, we did the sketches and then, I remember one day we drove we drove around London looking for a three D um, printing place. So we've gone from the sketch, which I drew on paper, to a now more measured design, um, to now doing a three D print of the actual brush in itself. So actually, now this was the first time we ever saw just an idea of what our brush is like in our hands. So in terms of sizing, in terms of how it fits, the idea was that this 
brush was supposed to fit perfectly into a woman's hand in terms of the application, very easy to use. Um, and also we wanted to, you know, so there are three key things. It had to be aesthetically appealing, dressing table worthy, and deliver impeccable results. So yeah, we had a 3D printout, and based on that, uh, we now had to find a manufacturer in, the, in China. Um, back then, Alibaba wasn't as um, clean and succinct as it is now these days. Alibaba, so that was what, that was our go-to place. Alibaba, you know, if you're looking for manufacturers in China, you know, I think one of the biggest fears that we had at the time that we don't know, um, we don't know a lot of these manufacturers. And in terms of um, just being able to do your due diligence, you know, there were kind of restrictions, but we did a lot of research, seeing what kind of products they've done before, um, had some samples sent out to us, and then we then concluded on which manufacturer we were going to go with. So what they do is when it comes to making these kind of products, you have to have a mold done. So we paid for a mold, which is going to cost you about four figures to have the mold done. And then based on, you have to agree on a MOQ, a minimum a minimum order quantity. So there's a lot of things that come into play when you're actually doing your first order. Bearing in mind, you know, your first order will be your first order and you want to, in the future, you know, hopefully be able to manufacture more of this if it's a success. So that was pretty much, you know, how things happen from the inception. You know, sketch on a piece of paper, I still keep that sketch. It was a lined note, you know, from my notepad. I keep all our drawings to the actual, you know, uh, design, to the 3D print, to the actual product. And then we remember when the first product actually arrived from China. Um, there's a whole process that goes into it because you're happy with it, but then again, you now have to sell this. Yeah. And then you have your customer who's a discerning person who's going to check it out. And you're always going to be compared to other brands out there. So that, I guess that was one of our biggest challenges at the time. Thank you so much. That was incredible detail for anybody who's looking at building their own product. Honestly, there's a gem right there. If you, um, what I'm going to do, I'm warning people now, is I'm clipping that section out and that's going to be a separate section in itself because there's value in what was just said. Not necessarily just the process that Tunde took, but the mindset that was taken to get there. There are stages to this you can't go straight to a manufacturer you have to go through a process of iteration to, to get to what you're looking for and that mindset of you know i've got an idea i need to constantly build on the proof of concept to a prototype to something that's tangible is really useful and what i would encourage people is it's not a sprint it's a marathon so that whole process how long did that take you? So you had a piece of paper yes. with a drawing on it. How long did it take you till you finally had the finished product in your hand? Just to give people an idea of, you know, how long this process can actually take. We're, talk we're talking months here. Um, I'd probably say over half a year to actually get to that point. There's, you know, there's so many bits that go into it. And with us, you know, it, what we, it was about getting the best product, you know, um, in terms of quality, in terms of, you know, how we want it to be delivered. There was so much detail that went into, even just down to the bristles, the kind of bristles that were being used, how many bristles were actually going to be packed into the brush in itself. Um, there's so much detail that goes into the actual look of the brush, you know, um, the detail of having your brand printed on it, where it's supposed to be printed, where not to print it. 
and obviously the brush it, it was a first so that in itself already it was setting a standard um you know and it's still a unique brush by itself it's still the only um teardrop shaped brush you know within its own category at the moment we have it's actually um it has a, we have a design right on it we had to do that I, I pissed that out as well we actually had to do design rights you know so we actually covered um in the us and europe and yeah very important territories so could you talk to us a little briefly about that so getting the design right what does that entail and how easy or difficult was that um, so with a design right, you have to go to a design right specialist. And what they do is because there are certain gray areas, a brush is a brush, you know, brushes are, have been around, you know, since man's been around basically. So there has to be an understanding of how unique is your brush. So, you know, there's design rights and there's patent rights. So there is a distinction that has to be understood. You're not patenting a brush as such, but we were covering certain grounds that in terms of our brush, in terms of the way it's been designed, that we wanted to actually have a protection on it, that you can't copy our brush to certain degrees, that if the handle or the bristles or the shape is in a certain way, then you are actually breaching um, the design right that we have for this. And then you have to pay for the territories as well, and each territory has its own costs involved as well. But what even happens is you pay for it and then you go into a period where um, the application is put in. So you, it's, it's, you're not protected fully, well, you're not protected um, for that period. However, the, design, the application goes through um, and you kind of have to wait for a certain period. Um, but in that time, you can, if, if there's any kind of issues that come up, you can contest it because you've actually put an application through. So it's a bit of a very, you know, tough gray area, but, and that's why we had to bring in specialists to actually do it for us. So we actually have a design right lawyer who we still work with um, for our products. Yeah. And so important for protecting your in intellectual property and meaning that you have a significant USP in the market, really. Um, yes. Uh, you, you mentioned manufacturers as well. Yeah. What's the question around that? Have you found yourself having to change manufacturers at all? Oh, definitely. Um, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Um, it's ironic that we're talking about design rights because depending, you know, um, what geographical location you manufacture your products, there are certain regions that would love to do a copy of your product. Um, mm -hmm. And they have no respect for design rights or patents or anything at all, you know, <laughs> the regions that we're talking about, you know, so um, it becomes a bit of a gray area, but manufacturers likewise as well. Sometimes you receive a product. Um, I remember we, you know, there's the one or two products that we had to go through batches where, okay, we're going to have to manufacture this all over again, because even you can do as much, do as much due diligence as possible um, go through every single step in terms of testing, sampling and everything. And sometimes it doesn't come out exactly the way you want it to be. Now that, so that kind of tells a lot about the kind of brand you are because some people just take it for granted and say, well, it is what it is. We're going to still put this out. We don't work that way. Um, we, every, all of our products go through testing. Um, our cosmetics, we have what we call MSDS reports that are done. They're done in the country of manufacture. They're done in the UK as well. So with our products are lab tested. Um, obviously, we, you know, I know we're going through Brexit, but we're still part of the EU. The EU itself 
has rules in terms of um, products being sold in particular countries as well. The UK likewise as well. So we go through all of these things um, as a brand. And even when you sell abroad, especially wholesale, they will ask you for these documents. Um, so that's, that's a really interesting point that I think a lot of entrepreneurs or early entrepreneurs don't necessarily take into consideration. If you want to start a food brand or a cosmetics brand, something which any, anything which could potentially have health implications on your customer, it yeah. goes through incredibly stringent testing. Correct. Um, you could go the back door and not go through all of that process, which is very dangerous. And companies that do that, I, in my opinion, have a very short lifespan. Yeah. But making sure that everything you, you're doing is above board and legitimate, including making sure that the ingredients are correctly um, included on your packaging, etc. All of those little elements must be signed off by the relevant authority. And not only can it be quite time consuming, it can also be quite expensive but definitely worthwhile. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned your partner a couple of times. Yes. And w- me, me and Afalabi, we've worked and we've mentored individuals in business in the past. And one of the key points that we notice around early entrepreneurs is that they're trying to do a lot of this stuff by themselves. And one of my first pieces of advice to any entrepreneur who wants to start a business is build a team who's in your team and who is your partner. And you don't just need people around you at a kind of subordinate level, people to do the heavy lifting while you direct. You also need somebody to challenge you intellectually, challenge you strategically. I think that's absolutely vital for an early business to to thrive. I'd just like to hear a little bit more about the dynamic really between you and your business partner. What, What strengths do you have that help in that partnership? What are her strengths in, in that partnership? And how do you help work together to build uh, and grow your business? Wow. Um, if she was listening to this or she gets listened to this, she'll probably laugh at that question. So my business partner, her name is Rissy. Um, a lot of people don't know. Um, Rissy's actually my cousin. Um, so obviously there's a blood relation there, but business-wise, um, our blood relation doesn't come into a business. Um, we're strictly individuals who see this as a business. Um, and we look at it from that perspective. In terms of our personalities, um, Rishi's very fiery. She's a very fiery woman. Um, I have, personally, I have this thing about female entrepreneurs. I just have a, I like them. I just love female entrepreneurs. I love entrepreneurs, generally speaking, but there's just something about, you know, women as well going against all the odds and trying to make a successful business. So I kind of have that respect for them anyway. Um, our personalities are very similar and also we're slightly different in certain things. Um, she has a very, she, she has a very high drive. I have, we both have that. I have a very high drive. We have, we have a big drive for success. Um, detail, uh, pay attention to detail. We both have that. Um, we there are certain things that we have different points of view on um but what it is the most important thing about partnerships is about coming to a compromise it's not really about egos it's really about what's best for the business what's best to take you forward um she knows she knows how to press my buttons to get me moving and stuff like that and what it is we kind of understand each other's strengths you know um was the what are the differences so we argue we do argue 
In fact, um, in fact, funnily enough, she's calling me right now. I think her ears must be ringing wherever she is. Uh, we, as business partners, we argue. I'll, I'll share a funny joke. Um, there was one time we had a, ma a massive blow up. Um, so, we just, so we stopped talking to each other for the whole week. But we were WhatsApping each other. But we were just not talking you know, to each other on the phone. Because on a personal level, it's like we've fallen out. But however, as far as business is concerned, we've got business to run here. Yep. So we're, you know, we're WhatsApping each other. There's a third person, her name is Esther. Esther we brought in, because in the beginning, when we were running the brand, um, Rissy had a full-time job. Obviously, I have a full-time job. And running a business is hard to actually be able, so we, your orders have to be fulfilled and all sorts. you know. So we brought in Esther. Um, Esther's a fantastic young lady. Um, she's now a partner within the business as well. So really, the core business is the three of us. There are other people involved in other parts of the business. We, you know, um, Our Instagram page, um, we have this lady called Varna who just understands it. She understands the industry and stuff like that. One thing I'll say about business is that as you go along, you know, there is this um, idea that people think that you have to do everything yourself. That until it's perfect, I'm not moving forward. And if no one can do it as good as me, then, you know, I have to do it. Um, there is something to be said about delegation of parts of your business. You can't be the one focusing on everything. And even from the early days, you have to um, accept the fact that you're going to have to dedicate things, even if you have to pay for the service or whatever, so it can allow you to focus on the more important things. As a brand, we had to expand. As a brand, we wanted to break into markets. As a brand, we wanted to bring out new products. And just between the two and the three of us, it was impossible to do if we were just focused on the nitty gritty of, oh, has that package been picked up by FedEx, you know, did DHL actually deliver that package or what's, you know, what have you. But saying that, know your business. And when you know your business, know that, you know, just even if you, if you, even if you're not the expert, know every facet of your business. And when you now start to delegate things to other people, you can oversee it and understand if they are doing it right or not. A hundred percent. And that, that links into one of our sayings uh, on the podcast, which is, there's a reason why you don't see army generals on the front line. Correct. Um, we need to have oversight of everything that's going on, but we also need enough breathing room. We also need to be able to take a step back so that we can see the bigger picture. Sure. We need to be the ones steering the ship, not the ones in the engine room. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm hitting people with a lot of metaphors now. They're just coming <laughs> out of me. Um, but um, no, I, I really... Uh, appreciate that i agree with the the sentiment that delegation is key to a strong business and some some people are quite nervous about delegating too early on because maybe they haven't tested their value proposition maybe they haven't got enough money to fully fund um and a, a new hire etc maybe could could you talk a little bit about that so in terms of kind of bringing new people on especially yeah. when the business is growing how did you go about doing that um, maybe before the business had, had fully reached its, its, its growth? So it's something that we kind of do organically and it's something that we will continue to do. I mean, take our Instagram, for instance, you know, um, Rissy pretty much takes care of Instagram or took care of Instagram. And after a period of time, we had to farm it out to somebody who works for us. You know, we, mm. kind of, we've, we looked around for the right person, brought her in, and she's doing a fantastic job, you know, she understands our ethos. She understands what we're trying to create. Um, 
everything is discussed internally before we do anything. And then you let people run. You know, I'm one of those who's of the mind, don't micromanage. Just let people, you know, once you micromanage people, their, cre their creativity doesn't come out. You know, so as I said, it's an organic thing. Um, to give another example, digital marketing, in particular, you know, being able to generate sales through uh, digital marketing platforms via Instagram, via Facebook, YouTube. Um, so pretty much most of last year, I was the one running these platforms. So in the beginning, I said, you know, there are times where I don't sleep overnight. So I come back from work and I have to jump on Facebook. I have to create content. I have to put ads out, you know, kind of watch these ads. And as you're going, you're configuring these ads. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I did a lot of that last year. But in between that, we just came to a point where we said, okay, do you know what? I'm not exactly an expert myself. I've had to learn this. Let's, because what happened was we brought in an expert right from the onset when we decided to do this. In the beginning, you know, we weren't paying for ads. As you guys would know, um, Instagram has evolved over the years. When we first came out as a brand, you could put your, um, put your content on Instagram. It will, the reach was so far wide, you know, you didn't have problems. And then Facebook then decided one day to start to monetize it. And then you had to start paying for your ads and it's evolved. And even now the reach is so restrictive that it's, you know, you start, you're spending more money and even, and still with all that money you're spending, the reach is still quite restricted. So come last year, we thought, okay, we're going to have to change tactics. Um, and then we started to do, you know, pay for ads. So we brought in a person, quite an expert, apparently, this is what we were told, brought her in. And from day one, yes, she, you know, this um, person was able to, you know, hit the ground moving. We had sales. Um, but the cost was, she was, she, she was, her prices were extortionate. So I thought, okay, do you know what? I've studied what you've done. I'm going to take this over myself. So within the second month, I was out doing her ROAS. ROAS is um, return on ad spend. So I was, I was even beating her numbers. I thought, okay. Um, I don't know. We don't, you know, obviously the company's not going to pay me for this, yeah. you know, rather than we're paying all this money out to somebody. So I took over from that point and it's something that I had to kind of study and just do continuously. You know, I got to a point where we now said, okay, I, oh, as a business, we need to give this to an expert again. And, um, we brought in one of the, actually we brought, so the, the company that we brought in at the time is actually very well known in the UK. Um, I won't name them, but they came in and took over our digital marketing. And it was probably one of the worst decisions we've ever made. It was a massive disaster. Um, paid them a lot of money and they didn't have a clue. So they were very good salespeople, but when it came to actually, they, they really affected our revenue and it had a very, it had a big knock on effect on our business last year. Um. I'm going to bring, I want to bring Afalabi in on this because I think there's a lot that we can touch on here. But something that you said really highlighted a, a, a real strong belief of mine, which is one of the key differences that an entrepreneur has to maybe other people is that they are a producer, not a consumer. And what I mean by that is we, we live in such a, con, a consumerist society so that whenever we need something done, our first port of call is always who can I get to do it or who can do it for me? Um, and the difference with entrepreneurs is they will go, how can I do this myself? 
So you brought somebody in, for instance, to help you with your digital marketing. Yes. But you weren't content with just having them do it and then writing a terrible review about the service. You then moved on to a step forward, which, were, which was, how can I do this myself? Um, talking relationship-wise, again, my fiancé is currently terrified because we're trying to renovate our kitchen. And she knows that I've got that look in my eye <laughs> where, where I'm asking the question, am I really going to pay this much for someone to do something that I can do myself? Am I really going to pay this much? Like, you know, um, she, she told me how much a new garden fence was. And I said, I can go to the, tr- to the forest and buy the wood <laughs> and chop it into shape. But I, there is definitely a mentality there for entrepreneurs who don't, are not just content with shopping acts out, especially if the service isn't good enough quality. Um, so, so that's something that I, I really want to, 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 to tease out, which is I encourage people to step away from being a consumer and be a producer actually know the inner workings of what it is you're looking for so that you can price it effectively, know your numbers, know your ROAS, know your um, ROI so that you know whether you're getting a good deal or not. But specifically around marketing, I want to address the elephant in the room, uh, which is we are talking about beauty, beauty brands and, and the beauty industry. Um, my beauty regime is a shower and sometimes, especially now, it's definitely sometimes I brush my hair. That's about it. Uh, we are free men and we are in the beauty industry. And you mentioned specifically that you were working on the digital marketing side of your business yourself. Yes. But I'd just like to touch on that. Could you t- t- tell us about your experience marketing a product that you actually didn't use and isn't catered to somebody like you? Okay, that's uh, quite quite an interesting question, um, Harry. Now, obviously, our products are geared towards the beauty enthusiasts. Now, I specifically didn't say women. It's beauty enthusiasts. And there are men who use our products as well. Just, you know, it's, and one of the things about our brands, our brand is that it's all, it's, it's an all inclusive brand, whatever your skin tone, whatever your, you know, texture of your skin, whatever your racial background, what have you, our products cater for everyone across the board. Mm. Uh, What that meant, what that means as a brand is we need to understand, or we needed to understand the beauty industry in itself. And we've we 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 we've done a lot of research, and we continue. It's, it's an ongoing thing. You have to understand the beauty industry in itself. And I think this is why companies that we've brought in, we've probably we're probably on our fifth digital marketing company now, who claim to be very good at digital marketing, but they don't understand their industry, and this is the problem. It's one thing to be like a car salesman, and you can flog anything, but I now bring you into beauty. You really need to understand the industry. So I feel that. For us, we've continuously been studying the industry. Um, Rissy being a female, Esther being a female as well, they have a perspective on products. We try our products on ourselves, well, excluding myself, of course. I mean, the girls are still waiting for me to try on the color. So, yeah, keep on waiting. That's not going to happen. But, you know, they have an understanding of 
what a woman wants. But apart from that, um, we use a lot of influencers. Influencers is key to the beauty industry. We're constantly sending out our products to influencers who use it. We're constantly listening to feedback from people. When our, when our first product came out, the teardrop shape brush, as it well, the teardrop brush anyway, um, there's this lady, one of the biggest influencers in the US. Her name is uh, Tati Westbrook. Now Tati, what she does is she buys products. Of course, people send her products, but she's a real neutral. She will buy products and actually test them out and she will do posts. She bought our brush and um, she tested it and she did a review on our brush. Now she called it the world's biggest um, cosmetic brush. It's still on YouTube. It had over a million hits at a time. And she called, because our, our first brush was, just the size of it was fairly larger than your standard brush. And she, she then, but she, she gave it a good review. Now we took in the things that she said and then we came up with a second brush called a mini teardrop shaped brush. So it was a smaller version of our first brush. Now this is based on um, reviews from other people, use from customers, posts from customers. So it was a case of really understanding the industry. Now in terms of taking it to digital marketing on a continuous basis, you have to really understand other brands. You really have to understand the people buying you know, the discerning customer who buys cosmetics. There are so many brands out there, so many brands. And what is your USP? We had to come up with a USP. Our brushes are our USP. Um, I don't think there are there is any brand right now who can match us for what we do in terms of our brushes. We do color cosmetics. You know, we brought out, last year we brought out a beauty palette called a queen palette. So many brands are doing queen palettes, you know, are doing palettes, you know, eyeshadow palettes. But, you know, what we wanted to do was have a USP, but also understand the industry. And when I run ads, I'm constantly testing. I'm constantly hitting a particular demographic. We know our demographic. We know it's women. We know what age, what ages they are. We know their location. In fact, the good thing about Facebook is as you continuously run ads, it starts to give you statistics and data. Right now, data is gold. The way the world is going, data is gold. And as it, if you want to be a brand that's going to succeed, you need to understand your market. You need to understand your customer. Data is key. You need to, every bit of data that comes into your business, you need to cherish it and use it to your advantage. And that's, how we, that's what we do in terms of running our ads. So I, I have data that I refer to. We have a customer database of the ones you've bought from us. You know, I refer to Facebook, understanding the demographics of my customers. I know how to target them. And it's a, you know, even you're, you're still constantly doing things where you're still uh, testing out other markets and testing out how, how to, you know, prospecting for more information, prospecting for new customers. So it's an ongoing thing. Amazing. Absolute God. You're preaching to the converted when you say data and testing. Yeah. We have a value proposition and we need to test it. And one of the things that people listening to this podcast and listening to the podcast in general will know is we have a saying here, which is you must start with the assumption that nobody wants your stupid box. Correct. And, and work from there. If you believe that you, you have the, the perfect product, then you're, you're, you're already going to be falling behind people that are willing to test and adjust. Yes. Afalabi, what, what would you like to add to that? Guys, I've got to apologize. I've just been soaking this in. I, I truly that some people right now are on their second listen, but they haven't finished. 
because they, like me, minutes ago would have started this all over again. Tunde, what were you showing in terms of product design and manufacturing? It was easy. I'm hoping people right now are actioning this in terms of the, the rationale, the design steps, the attention to detail, but also the patience. We, we started this conversation, I'm going off track. Anyway, we started this conversation with <laughs> about your work-life balance. And some people may have been put off by it. But the truth, because you weren't reliant upon this brand, you were able to be patient with it. Mm. And there are many entrepreneurs not patient with their offering. And thus what they offer is average at best. Yeah. Because you were able to be patient and wait those months and do your due diligence and protect the design itself, you've come up with truly mm. unique. Yes, there are other great lessons in terms of team structure, recruitment, um, leadership, and then you mentioned marketing, which, yes, it is integral that we study our industries. Many companies who will claim to know our industries but don't because they haven't had to spend their time on Instagram or YouTube at two in the morning um, just looking at things which you, you generally have no interest in, but your best interest to study what's going on. So people do not wait to the end of this to actually action that thought. I should really listen to what he said again. Go at the beginning now. I'm going to do some Charlie Shoff, Sloth bombs. Pull it, will it? What, what, what did <laughs> Westwood do? <laughs> we'll have all of that in there. We'll restart it. We'll reload it. Um, but com- completely agree with that sentiment. Some really powerful gems here and, um, there, there are a few times when I think we could delve and expand on some of the key points, but then you guys will all tell me off and say that the, the podcast is too long. So that's your fault that we're not going into further detail. Um, I do want to talk to you about your US uh, ambition. Sure. You, you mentioned um, that you, know, you have a, uh, a business which operates in multiple countries and yes. you manufacture at different locations. You also mentioned Tati Westbrook, who uh, from my experience is a massive um, online creator in the US, yeah. but you're a UK company yeah. with, with, with international uh, ambition. So could you talk to us about when you made the decision that broadening out your, your, your target market was was the right move and also what steps you took to, to get there and how you're how you're proceeding with it. Okay, so um Rissy, my business partner, to give her credit, she I call her Instagram queen. Um she probably calls me Facebook King. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she practically watches Instagram all day long. Um so at the time when we were bringing out our first product, we had a, we, comp- we compiled a list of 2000 influencers, which she had collated herself, studying them based on their, um, what they do in terms of um, what particular kind of products they're into, um, their engagement, their numbers, and contacted all of them. And basically based on the feedback that we got back, we decided to actually send our products to um, all of these influencers. I won't tell you how what you know what the percentage we got back was, but it's um, it, it's 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 a hard job, you know. Um, so that's what we did from the initiation. 
Um, we sent, we, you know, we got in contact with them and the ones that were really, you know, that we appeal to as a new brand, bearing in mind that, you know, we're just a new brand who's about to launch, you know, so we sent the products out to them and they did, you know, they did their reviews, they did their posts and um, yeah, you know, that in itself started to generate the traction towards the brand and people were buying it. And, you know, we had paid so much attention to the product. It wasn't just about bringing out just a brush, you know, I think sometimes people, when they have a business idea, the idea of generating money is what they think about so much. Um, it's really key about, I, for me, the key things, do your research, understand what you're bringing out. Your product is essential. If you come up with a good product that appeals to people, that is actually addressing, it's, it's a solution to a problem. The teardrop brush that we created is a solution to a problem. And that in itself attracted customers. So the idea of, am I going to sell? Look, focus on your product, do your homework, and it will generate the sales that it needs to generate. So um, essentially, that's what we did. You know, the influencers, and that's what we still do up until today. Influencers are key when it comes to the beauty industry. Um, gone are the days of, you know, marketing has changed so much. You know, back in the day, the old school methods of, you know, radio station and, you know, flyers and all that stuff is, you know, um, it's, it's, it's evolved over a period of time and um, you have to really understand what really works for your industry if you're going to do marketing. Um, I want to highlight the number that you mentioned. You mentioned 2,000 influencers. Correct. And the, the reason why I think that's important is because I've spoken to brands, entrepreneurs who said, you know, I've reached out to 50 influencers and only one of them has, has, has agreed to work with me. That's fantastic. You spoke to 50 people and one of them wants to work with you and you don't have a business yet. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, 2000 influencers for a company like Eloise Beauty will have an, a significant return. But if you're starting out, if you're reaching out to 2000 people, be grateful if 1% of those 2000 people wants to work with you. Yeah. And that's a good number. 1% people that 1% of strangers that you're reaching out to saying, would you want to work with me? I've said, yes, that's great. When you get to an Eloise beauty level, I wouldn't be surprised if that number is 10 X or even 20 X. The, the, the point is, is that when you start off, you need to do the numbers. It doesn't mean reaching out to anybody just because it means as, as Tunde said, doing your research, making sure that there's a good product market fit. So the product that you're offering actually ties in with the influencer that you want to work with. There's no point in trying to offer a beauty solution to somebody whose influencer uh, content is all around football or sport, for instance. Make sure that there's a good fit, but also make sure that you're willing to put in that work, even at a stage where you're actually successful. So I just wanted to re reiterate that point, which is, this is not easy. And I think you've, you've highlighted that a few times today, Tunde, which is this is actually work. Entrepreneurship is not a way of escaping work. Yeah. Um, entrepreneurship is facing work head on. Um, but with your US experience, I think one of my other questions around that is dispatch and order fulfillment. Yeah. So we we currently at London Virgin Hair supply about 56 countries and we need to um, adhere to various regulatory challenges across 
those those different countries. Now, with with you in the US or anywhere else that you currently supply, how is it being a UK company actually fulfilling orders and getting your products delivered abroad? So it, it can be a challenge because there are many things that you have to take into consideration. Number one, we want our products to be delivered as quick as possible. In the US, we actually do next day delivery 24 hours. Um, at the same time, we have to keep the cost of shipping down. So customers buying from our, you know, buying our products, you know, buying on our platform, we want them to feel that they are getting a good deal. You know, our, our, our products are actually mid-luxury, you know. Um, there are certain places they would be, that you would see them in a certain place you wouldn't see them when it comes to, say, like brick and mortar uh, retailers. Um, so when they're buying online, you know, you have to take that into consideration. And at the same time, you're trying to keep the costs down. There have been times where we've actually, um, in terms of what people are, are, are paying for the shipping, um, it's not actually the, 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 the actual price itself. Where, so we, we're taking, or sometimes we take on a little bit of the shipping costs for the sake of the customer. So there are many things that you have to consider. In terms of territories, there are certain territories that will now start to add things like tax and customers don't like that. So there's so many things that you have to take into, into consideration when you're doing, you have to really do your research. Uh, we've worked with third parties before and, you know, we monitored it and within two weeks we, we backtracked from that decision because um, as much as they were very well recognized, they were not hitting the KPIs that, you know, that we had set for them. As a brand, every single thing can come back, you know, and hit you um, square in the face. So everything is just on all, all these moving parts always constantly have to be checked. So as a brand, we're constantly looking at, you know, how we can make sure customers are getting their products intact, on time, and at, you know, very, very good um, shipping rates as well. Yeah, and it's, it's a key challenge when you start to take on some of these additional overheads and... Yeah let's say for instance, shipping to one country is more expensive than shipping to another country. Now, do we penalize that country for uh, additional shipping costs or do we spread out the cost um, ac across all of, our, all of our platforms? These are the types of challenging discussions and questions that you have to, to ask and it does impact the way that your brand can be seen in different markets. Yeah. Um, I would say um, just, just a genuine theme that is being picked up through all of the directs that we're speaking to. Um, yes, there's that dogged perseverance and that um, consistent work ethic, but we're also seeing the ongoing use of A-B testing. We, we, we saw that in Scaling to Mass Operations with Mike Williams, or also seeing that with Tunde. Um, A-B testing in terms of product design, but also A-B testing in terms of marketing and the use of employees and third parties. So anyone who's listening to this, and is trying to really pick out nuggets. Okay, is there a, uh, a common denominator amongst these people? A-B testing is definitely one of them. Um, yes, do your due diligence, but ensure that you test your theories and be willing to act quick and pull out quick when necessary. Um, go fast. Yeah, and I'm starting to work on a term and a concept that I would like to introduce to people. I'm gonna call it micro failures. Um, and what I mean by that is we're, we're all trying to avoid failures. We, we don't want to fail. But I think it would be good for us to flip that on its head and actually try to fail, but fail incredibly quickly and with minimal impact on your business. 
because we don't know what is going to have that viral impact in 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 the uh, ecosystem we don't know what's going to have that massive impact and some of the ideas that you have which you think this is a little bit out there this is a bit strange i don't know how it's going to work we we can steer away from them because we're scared but what i would say is dive directly into them but just fail and make sure that the failure has as minimal impact on you as possible so that you can move on so if Tunde doesn't mind me saying, what he's expressed is through manufacturing, through advertising, he's had a lot of micro failures where he tried something, didn't work, moved on very quickly, which I think is absolutely the way that a good business needs to run, especially in the 21st century where the world, the ecosystem is changing so rapidly. Um, if, if somebody comes to you and they're an expert in social media marketing, and they're basing all their expertise on 2018 activity. They're already behind the curve. So by being able to test and adjust, by, enabled to, by being able to fail fast, it allows you to gain that understanding, gain that experience, which will help you succeed in the future. Um, and, and speaking of future, that's um, one of the final questions I'd like to ask you today, which is where do you see the beauty of, so where do you see the future of the beauty industry. How do you see it changing? And what role do you think Eloise Beauty is gonna play? Um, that's a great question. Um, so the be right now, the, I believe the beauty industry is kind of going through what I might describe as a renaissance. Um, the, for quite a long time, you know, the big names, they took the limelight. But now people are beginning to see that indie brands are more exciting. Indie brands are bringing in innovation. Indie brands are understanding customers. So all of a sudden, indie brands like ours are the ones that the um, bigger brands are, you know, they're looking back over their shoulders and they're looking at us, even to the point of even, I'd say, hijacking ideas from, you know, the indie brands. Or in some cases, just buying them up, you know. And even investors, you know, venture capital uh, companies are coming out, buying up, you know, beauty is so sexy right now. Um, you know, so a lot of that is happening. And depending how you see it, it seems that all the, you know, current uh, geopolitical situations even tend to move things, you know, with what happened, you know, what's been happening recently, we know within America, you know, with, um, you know, BLM, even that has had an, a massive effect on the beauty industry as well. Um, brands are being called out, you know, big name brands are being called out, asking about their, they're being asked about their quotas. Um, so it's evolving, it's constantly evolving. And that's, and that's a really good thing. Um, but so many things constantly happen. So I would say the future is really about the evolution of the um, indie brands. And, they, and um, innovation has kind of slowed down a bit, I'd say within the beauty industry, you know, there was a time when, you know, just new innovative products were constantly coming out. So I think that's one of the bigger challenges for the indie brands at the moment to come up with unique products. And as a brand, that's what we're constantly doing. We're always pushing the boundaries. We've got quite a few new products coming out. Um, we, we're due to release some new ones over the next few weeks. And this is something that we're constantly pushing. Um, and don't be scared to try things. You, you may, I like the fact that Abby and uh, yourself, Falabi, you, 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 you were talking about fa you know, failing. I think unfortunately, um, society frowns on failure. Um, 
there's a book that I gave my children to read called Sometimes You Win, Sometimes You Learn. In fact, failure is the step that takes you up, in my opinion. Failure is what actually makes you learn. You know, you talk about people, um, I visited Thomas Edison, apparently, you know, when he was trying to get the light bulb, well, he failed 10,000 times, but, you know, I don't know the exact number, but every failure was an evolution into a new idea. And I feel that, you know, as individuals, your society frowns upon failure. Failure is not a bad thing. Failure, as I said, is a step that takes you forward. Um, but not to, you know, overemphasize that. The point is evolving, 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 constantly looking at where things haven't worked and taking the lessons from it and using that as a step forward. So as a brand, um, we, we, you know, we're, we're pushing to be global. We know we're going to be global. Um, we want to be in retail malls. We want to be in, you know, the, you know, the top beauty stands. When you walk through, when you're looking at your your big names, your Urban Decays, your Charlotte Tilbury's, your Max, you're just going to walk alongside C. Louise. Um, you know, that's what we're doing. That's what we're working on. We know it's a, it's a tough process, but it's not impossible. The belief, the drive that, you know, myself and my business partners have, myself, Rissi, Esther, you know, the passion we have for this, um for our brand and just to keep on bringing out products that makes our customers go, wow, I love this. I want to buy this. And also having a, so there's something called a pull and push ethos or where you as a brand, you do things and you wait for people to come to you, you know, but there's also the thing where you as a brand, you need to go out as well. So we're an online brand, but at the same time, we're in retail now. You know, we're in retail in the Middle East, we're in retail in the US, we're in retail in the UK. Um, you know, we have top brands coming to look for us. You know, they're brands that we want to work with. You know, we want to be, one of our goals at the moment is to be in Boots. You know, the Boots is one of the best brands to stock your brand. You know, they have the likes of Fenty and other big names as well. And we see ourselves being in there. You know, we've had the likes of Harrods talk to us and other, you know, sounds like I'm name dropping at the moment, but you know, Listen, um, listen, listen, take, take it, take it, talk your talk, <laughs> talk your talk, flex on them, flex. <laughs> you know, we just misguided, just sign us up, um, you know, um, the turn of uh, to, to 2019, you know, so we're, it, it's about pushing your brand, being where you want to be. I think basically you just have to have a blueprint of where you want to be. Keep on working at it. You will come across challenges see those challenges as obstacles that are temporary that you have to overcome. And um, you know what? Just keep on praying and God will get you to where you want to be. I'm a person of faith, but I just, if you don't mind me just dropping that in. Um, as far as our faith strengthens us as well, all of us within this company are people of faith and I'll, I'm proud of it. I'm proud to say it, you know, and um, that strengthens us, you know, it's about mind, body, spirit. Everything has to be uh, in one. Um, that last point, we really appreciate you saying, um, I think anybody listening to this podcast knows, uh, our background and our faith and it is something that strengthens us, especially through difficult times. Um, so there's, there's, there's no need to, to, to apologize or, or, or be shy when you talk about that. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of the books that we recommend as well, whether people realize it or not are by, uh, authors who also had faith. So I'd say, um, if, if 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 that isn't something that currently um, interests you, 
you'd be surprised at how much influence you're currently taking on from people who have a background in faith and in some cases a background in religious ministry specifically um so 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 that is uh, one point i think i just want to echo the point that you made which is yes now is a great time for indie indie brands to grow um the market is so much more fragmented than it used to be um the barrier to entry is also very low in comparison but do not get complacent listeners and the reason why i say that is because the the current channels that people are using to grow the facebooks the instagrams the tiktoks etc that the youtubes they are becoming more and more aware of the power that they wield in making and breaking businesses yeah. which is why for instance the instagram algorithm has recently changed the youtube algorithm is constantly changing and they are effectively trying to get more of the pie for themselves yes um so the this this uh, renaissance period this period of of massive growth for indie companies and um startups and entrepreneurs is not going to be around forever so if you do have an idea i say strike while the iron is hot before the gatekeepers decide to close their doors and it becomes a lot more difficult for you to enter into that market now we're definitely going to have to talk to you again because there are so many other things that you mentioned that we don't even have time to delve into I'm, i've got my hands on my head because i'm like where do i even go next i would love to talk to you about your engagement with some of these big brands like boots um harrods etc and what that's really like because one of the points that i mentioned um just uh before we started was that a lot of the brands that we work with even the massive companies are smoke and mirrors and you know you mentioned that you appreciate the fact that we as a business we put our money where our mouth is but there are a lot of companies that will reach out to you or that you'll work with and only get so far and then all of a sudden communications break down or whatever that is and that's happened with us a lot of times and you know you've got back and forth and the challenges increase now i'm not going to go into that now but that's almost a teaser for the next time we have you on because i'd love to hear about your endeavor with boots how you've interacted with likes of harris how they treat you as a smaller company compared to them as a bigger one you know what that no- negotiation dynamic is like but yeah we'll have to stay tuned and talk about that another time i do want to end on a very pointed question though and that is around the the title of our podcast expensive lessons <laughs> could you share with us a a challenge a failure a transitional moment where you had an incredibly expensive lesson something that has molded you as a businessman also as an entrepreneur and something that has shaped the future of your of your entrepreneurial career wow um so many come to mind but one that really stands out happened in 2018 um so we're quite well known in the middle east and at the time trying to broker a deal with a distribution company um an eight figure distribution deal um out in the middle east and this company was so much in love with us uh, they flew over to meet us you know we met up over a period of a few days we broke into deal got our lawyers involved contracts went back and forth 
Um, they, they flew over from Kuwait. Um, they're a very well-known distribution brand and they had some brands that are very well-known to people. Um, so anyway, um, things were moving forward. 10% um, was paid on the deal. Bearing in mind, this is all contractual, you know. Um, and four months into it, um, it just so happened that this was happening just around before Ramadan at that particular point in time. And then all of a sudden they went quiet. And we thought, okay, well, you know, they're from, you know, the Middle East, obviously Ramadan and stuff, everything. Ramadan passed and it's still quiet. We're reaching out, you know, we've sent off the first batch of product. Um, they were doing, they were going to get us in some very high profile um, um, retail, retail outlets. Um, and things just went quiet. To cut a long story short, they reneged on their contract. Um, and what it was for a company, an eight-figure deal is a lot of money. We were already planning two, three years ahead based on this deal. And the trajectory of our company changed based on this deal. We started to do other plans for the business. So when that fell through, it a lot of our plans imploded with that as well. So the key lesson that I took from that was take everything with a pinch of salt and don't trust everything that's placed in front of you. Regardless of what people say, regardless of what people sign, um, you have to take everything with a pinch of salt and don't trust everything because we can become quite gullible. You know, people will jump at you, you know, they kind of, you know, they come at, we love your brand, it's so beautiful. They will, you know, sweet talk to you and everything to the point that you're thinking, oh my God, we are really good, aren't we? And, you know, you'd, you'd even, this is where we sign a contract, you know. Um, I, I had, at one point, I had to go to seek a, uh, a lawyer um, who understood um, Sharia law. And it just so happened that our contract was based on English law. So that even made it a lot easier for us. But, you know, we had to get a barrister involved. And when we looked at the cost of actually pursuing this through the courts, with no guarantees of winning. It was a case of, okay, I think we're just gonna to have to leave this for now. So um, it really affected the business that year, um, like I said. But you know, it was the biggest lesson that we both took away from it is take everything with a pinch of salt and don't be too trusting. Uh, Afalabi, what, what are you thinking when you hear that? Wow. Um, I'm really grateful that you joined us tonight. Um, I'm grateful because for people listening, they haven't had to listen to me um, in that I've just been a front row seat spectator, just trying not to say anything in case I stopped your flow. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the route map that you gave us in terms of design, production, manufacturing, your, your knowledge in terms of building a team, delegation, leadership and distribution, and the, the nuggets around marketing. But that final expensive lesson is one which is sobering. And it reminds us that throughout the process of being an entrepreneur, there are no guarantees. And potentially your faith there helps you to remain centered and just grounded. But if you are entering into this arena, you have to A-B test. You have to be willing to fail often for those micro failures but you've also got to be willing to be disappointed it's fascinating because prior to this call abby and i were speaking about 
how often we seem to be disappointed by other brands. And as an entrepreneur, you've got to accept that not everyone might have your values, your morals, um, but you've got to be willing to go high on every single time because you're not a person, you're a brand. It's irrespective of what storm comes your way. You need, still need to be able to dust yourself off and continue for that next client while serving the previous one. Absolutely. And that last point for me was so uh, just valuable, which is as an entrepreneur, even in your early stages, you may see that other brands or other businesses are going to want to reach out to you and uh, engage you for some sort of uh, transaction, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a consultant who tells you that they love your business idea and they're going to help you grow. You just need to give them some money to kick things off. Um, that what you need to be as a, as an entrepreneur at every stage is open-minded and cynical at the exact same time. I would love to work with a new company, but I am conscious of the fact that this may be smoke and mirrors and I need to be prepared for that. Uh, one of my favorite sayings, um, in life, and it's something that I coined, which is don't plan your life around unreliable people. And anyone you don't know is unreliable until they prove otherwise. So for the young entrepreneurs, the established entrepreneurs, yes, go into partnership. Yes, go into collaboration, but maintain that cynical mindset throughout. Don't plan your business around something which isn't yet tangible. So Nate, this was a incredibly valuable session for me. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed your insight, your intelligence, and also the, the heart that you have for, for new entrepreneurs. I think it resonates through the way you speak, that you clearly have a, a heart for people who are going into this journey, the level of transparency that you've shown from your business. It's really appreciated. No, thank you, guys. I really appreciate you both. And um, for just people on this listening to this podcast, um, I'm just, I just want to say this. And I, I, I wasn't paid to say this. Um, these two gentlemen, Abby and Afolabi, I really admire these guys and what they've done, what they do in their business. They have a lot of knowledge. And I think you should constantly follow these guys for inspiration, for knowledge. Um, yeah, it's, you know, since I've met these two, it's always been a pleasure just, you know, talking to them and even hearing what they have to say. So I just wanted to say that. Really appreciate that. That's fantastic. Um, Humbled. Thank you so much. Yeah, it means a lot coming from you. Um, where can people find you or your business? You can uh, post whatever you like. I understand that you also on occasion uh, do coaching. I think that's probably fully booked up at the moment. But just in case you want to um, uh, let people know where they can find you, where, where can they uh, reach out? Yeah, sure. So the business itself, Eloise Beauty, Eloise spelled E-L-O-I-S-E, beauty.com. Follow us on Instagram, just, you know, at Eloise Beauty. Um, go onto our website, you know, um, if you're lucky, you might find a discount code, get yourself, you know, beautiful products. Um, I run an organization called Empire Mentoring. If you go to empirementoring.com, um, basically, as Abby said, um, I'd love to help up and coming entrepreneurs in any way that I can. I feel that as business owners, we're really here to serve. That's the key of what we're all about. We're here to serve. 
you know, so whatever we can to do to, to, to bless other people. I know that Abby and Afolabi are constantly working on, you know, um, events to help up with coming businesses. So they have that ethos quite right. So yeah, look out for Abby's Beauty and um, just keep on following us. And um, of course, you know, Abby and Afolabi, go to their website, buy their products. Support us all. Support, support us all, <laughs> honestly. Um, Tunde, thank you so much. This has been another episode of Expensive Lessons where Company Direct says share the fruits of their labour, share some expensive lessons and share some, some real gems of knowledge. Hope to see you next week for another fantastic episode. Take care, everyone. Take care. Thank you.